Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is Missions and Marketplace Podcast, episode number 63. I'm joined today with Roberto Blake, who is the CEO and creative director of Create Awesome Media, LLC, where he develops and produces digital content and online media properties. Currently, he is the host of a popular creative education channel on YouTube known as Always Be Creating. Roberto also hosts and co-produces the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. So he's a podcaster. He's also a public speaker. He covers a variety of topics that fall within his wheelhouse, such as video marketing, personal branding, entrepreneurship, career development, social media. And he's attended various events that many of you have been to. I wanted to bring Roberto on to share some of his insights about YouTube and give career advice. And you'll see how generous Roberto was. I want you guys to hold on, strap in, and really listen to this guy. This guy has literally built up almost, if not more at this point, over a quarter of a million followers on YouTube, which frankly is amazing. And the amount of content that he's put out in terms of videos and actual blogs, He's been featured in Forbes and other areas. So there's something special about tapping into the mindset of these entrepreneurs and their willingness to share with me, share with you all. So I hope you guys can sit in with me and just take in what he has. So without further ado, here is my man, Roberto Blake. Roberto, welcome to the program, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to have you. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Roberto Blake, and I'm a creative entrepreneur. I've been a creative my entire life. I've been drawing since before I could walk. (laughs) A lot of people within my family were photo enthusiasts, so I became one too, uh, developing film in the darkroom at 10 years old. Went to college for graphic design and advertising. Before that, I wanted to be an animator, wanted to draw comics and cartoons, aspired to work for like Disney and Marvel. But I was very limited by the technology of my time. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, right now it's 2017. I just turned 33 years old. So when I got on the internet 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of open source software. That wasn't a thing. And, you know, all of our smartphones, they're more powerful than the computer I had to work with. So (laughs) today, if I was 13, 15, 16, I wanted to be an animator, I could go full steam ahead. Hell yeah. And like, I could crush it. And I could literally, if I was like 15 to 18 today, I guarantee you within five years, I'd have one of the top animation YouTube channels out there right now. But that wasn't the time I was born into. So I did corporate for a long time. I worked as a designer. I worked as a marketing manager. For a while, I worked in an agency in Manhattan, been solo for, I can't even remember how many years now, so I'm not going to try and like, because I'll end up having to double back and correct myself. But the (laughs) point is, now I run Create Awesome Media. That is my digital agency. We do things a little different right now. A lot of the focus is around video marketing platforms and micro video platforms. YouTube specifically as a focus as, you know, top line content for individuals and brands to build value and to really qualify their audience and get a a truly qualified audience for solving the problems that their company or they as a practitioner or or a professional or expert have the ability to solve Mm -hmm. and to reach those people because it's the second largest search engine in the world. But there are other great platforms to distribute video in. We're very much into live streaming and It's the engine through which I run my personal brand through because at heart, I'm a creative, I'm an educator, and I just want to create awesome things, share them with the world, and teach other people how to do that. 
YouTube has been a great platform to do that. I came from the world of blogging and doing my graphic design career uh, blog and interviewing people over there to shifting over to YouTube, doing uh, tutorials and career advice videos to help other creatives not be starving artists, make sure they don't end up in a cardboard box somewhere. And that's that's been my mission. And so I think this summer makes four years on YouTube of me doing that seriously, doing weekly content before I shifted to roughly daily content three years ago. And so in the last four years, I've grown from not having an audience, not having a following there, because like everyone, I started like YouTube earlier than that, but I didn't do anything with it. So I had no audience. I grew my audience in 2013 from zero. And as of today, it's just under a quarter of a million. So wow, yeah, that's what I've been up to. It gave me so many opportunities. Let me become a public speaker. I've started my own podcast, the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. I'm also doing a call-in show over on Anchor now that that platform's getting traction after a year. It's just giving me so many great opportunities to work with brands. I've gotten to work with Adobe. I've gotten to work with other companies on stuff, Dell, HP, Famebit, so many great people. And I've even gotten to work with the company that I wanted to work with as a kid. I got to do something with Disney. So there's just so many great opportunities today for creative people, whether they want to work in corporate, whether they want to be entrepreneurs. And I just want to give them the shot. I just want to make sure that they have the information and resources to take their chance because it's never, ever been a better time to be a creative person. Than now, yeah. And so it, it definitely came full circle for you, the fact that you got a chance to work with Disney and you were young, kind of aspiring to work for Disney. And now here you are still, I've always told a lot of people and listeners that your game will always be in your lane. So as long as you're doing kind of what you're called to do and what you're excited about, ultimately you'll end up in your goal. Now that may change how it looks over time because when you first started off in college and doing design and kind of other stuff, you probably didn't see it at the level that it is today. I mean, how could you? But I did and I didn't because here's a fun fact about that. In 2002, when I started college, I made a very what was considered at the time an arrogant and audacious statement that I wasn't supposedly allowed to make. So I had the nerve, the <laughs> arrogance, the ego, the audacity to tell my professors straight to their face that, hey, I think you're wasting our time teaching us how to design ads for newspaper print because we should be learning how to design Google banner advertisements and we should be learning how to design graphics for digital media because it's going to supplant all of this print advertising that you're having us do, especially for newspaper and magazine within just a few years. You were because, spot on. Yeah, I, I said that in 2002 wow. as a freshman in college and it was a lot of how dare you. I've been doing this since before you were born and blah, blah, blah. And this internet fad, it's not going to be taken seriously by businesses because this is just for you gamers and that's just for you kids. And real business people aren't going to take you seriously if you don't know how to design for newspaper ads and you're not going to get an agency or design job if you can't do newspaper ads. Banner ads are not going to be in demand like that for another 20 years if the, if the internet is even still a thing at that. <laughs> like, no, this is what they were telling me. This was, and I made another audacious statement in 2004. And I said, you know, I'm pretty sure that within the next decade that there will be no difference between computers and television and it'll pretty much be one thing. 
<laughs> and I wish back then that there had been a such thing as daily vlogging. You could have written all that stuff out and put it out there. Because if I had said that and I'd like, you know, just talk to the camera, talk to a daily vlog back then, because I mean, YouTube didn't exist yet. It'd be another two years, another year to two years. But I'd be on the record historically of being correct in that regard on that you know, prediction in a way where I could like, cause now it's only a handful of people I can say, Hey, remember when I said that thing that actually were there to witness that? Like, you know, there's only a handful of people, but it's real. <laughs> it's the truth. Because here's the thing. I was using the internet back in the days of AOL 6.0. Everything, <laughs> every move Facebook has made doesn't surprise me. Facebook's the new AOL in a very good way. It's the new AOL. Oh, Facebook Messenger? Like, oh, making it a separate appliance? Yeah, that was called AIM. Yes. I remember. Yeah. Oh, chatbots? I remember we had that in AOL too. Chatbot. Oh, chatbots are like, no, I, I saw that a decade ago. So it's not as sophisticated, but I, and the marketing implications now are tremendous, but I saw this coming. So you were a bit ahead of the curve in terms of seeing the technology would evolve and what that could mean for creatives. And you talk so much on your YouTube channel about creatives and wanting to support creatives. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your YouTube channel, and I really, really want everybody to check out Roberto's YouTube channel, is you don't only talk to the creative, but you talk to the soul of the creative. So you talk about anxiety, depression, mindsets. Hey, don't worry about starting at zero. Talk about I lived success, it. successes, failures. That's such a breath air from an entrepreneurial perspective because everybody you hear is either crushing it, killing it. And some of these entrepreneurs just feel like flat out losers where they're like, why is he crushing it? And I'm not. And you kept it so real to say, hey, look, you know, some days and maybe you didn't say these words, but some days I don't feel like getting up. There was a dark period in my life, but I kept getting the majority up. of my life, right? The, the far majority, the far majority. Look, for most of my life, if not more, I was what I would describe as an overwhelming boiling cauldron of anger and sadness and an angst mm. and pain. And I think that there are a lot of people who can relate to that. And so I'm being very upfront about that and vulnerable, especially in Instagram, where I literally public journal and I talk about mindset. And I talk about what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling and what I've been through in a very open way. And it's not because I want attention and it's not because I want to glorify any of the negativity I want. It's just that I don't think people are being honest. I don't think everyone's trying to do fake positivity. I hit fake positivity up a lot, but the reason is because I understand the people who are doing it have good intentions mm -hmm. and I'm not hating on them for that. But when I was a track and field runner, there was a strategy that we had called destroying the field. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. So a trick in track and field if you're a cross country runner, is to start the first two minutes with a ridiculously unsustainable pace because it's immediately going to discourage everyone else. The distance and the gap between you is going to feel so overwhelming that, that the majority of people will not try to close it because most people are glass half full. Got it. That's too hard. I won't even try. Oh, wow. I will never get there. I'm just going to stay here where I'm comfortable and do me. But to think that you aren't good enough or that you can't catch up or that you can't close the gap or that you can't surpass somebody, that's a defeatist attitude. And the thing is, there are people manufacturing a narrative to eliminate the competition, whether it's intentional or not, because you know, some people, this is just what they do instinctively. It's not some you know Machiavellian plot on their part. They're just going 
full steam ahead out of excitement and then they level off to say, hmm, like that was a bit much time to go to a sustainable pace. But what they don't realize and what they don't care because they're smart, they're staying in their own lane. They're not turning their head to look back. They're moving, a, they're foraging ahead, which is what you're supposed to do. What they don't realize the impact to everyone else around them or that's watching them is that there's no way I can do that. It's not their responsibility necessarily to do anything about that. Right. Me, I just feel that I need to make people aware that this is what happens. I need them to be armed with that knowledge because I need them to put it in perspective. I love that perspective. I mean, it's so real. It's so truthful. And if a lot of us as entrepreneurs are honest with ourselves, we do sometimes get caught looking at other people and letting that determine our speed, whether we're going to go faster or slower. And sometimes you feel like, ah, Roberto has it. Gary Vaynerchuk has it in that department. How could I ever get a slice of that? And really what you'll find going back to what we talked about earlier is your game being in your lane. If you're just doing what you're called to do and what you're excited to do, you'll find that you'll either be running next to that person, past that person, or you'll just have completely your own path. But you should never get off track to the point where people, the lead that they set becomes your distinguishing factor of getting involved in a particular business to begin with. Do you know how I crushed it in YouTube? You know what the underlying the underlying foundational truth of how I crushed it in YouTube was? Share that. That's something I was going to get into. What are some of those key components? I freaking ignored everyone else, meaning this. Did I look at other channels and what they're doing and study how they did it and what they did? Yes. Did I attach any emotional value to that? No. Did I look at the biggest YouTubers on the platform? No, because none of the biggest YouTubers on the platform were doing what I wanted to do. Not even close. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Do you know who I looked at? I looked at Terry White, who's now a friend. He's an Adobe product evangelist, and he does some of the best tutorials on YouTube. I looked at Howard Pinsky, who's now a friend. I looked at Nathalian Dodson from Tutvid, who's now a friend. I looked at the educators in YouTube, which are an underserved, undervalued market. And a lot of people have no idea when I mention Nathaniel Dodson, Terry White, and Howard Pinsky from Ice Flow Studios. They have no idea. Jared Poland. They have no idea who these people are mm -hmm. because you know who they're not. They're not PewDiePie. They're not Casey Neistat. They're not Philip DeFranco. They're not Swoozy. They're not Lily Singh. They're not Jenna Marbles. They're not iJustine. They're not those people. Love iJustine, by the way. I just seen Freddie Wong. Those were like two of the only big YouTubers who I had any real awareness of because I was not paying attention to the hierarchy of YouTube the way everyone does now because I was not interested. I was only interested in people that I related to and that did things that were exciting and interesting to me and I understood. I am a tech enthusiast. I am a photographer. I'm an artist. I'm an illustrator. You know, I'm a gadget geek. I'm an Adobe guy. So... Those are the people I watched, which do not necessarily have the largest followings in YouTube, which is fine because that was never my goal. The people with very few exceptions, they have this goal of I just want to be a big YouTuber and I want all the views and all the subscribers and the attention. I want the gold play button. I want the diamond play button. All that. Like That's almost a guarantee they won't make it. Mm. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because here's a number no one talks about. 500, 5,000, 50,000, and then 15 million, less than 500 people have 10 million subscribers in YouTube, most of those being brands, most of those being like your Jimmy Fallon's and stuff like that. And of course, the biggest YouTubers, your Markiplier's, your PewDiePie's, your Jacksepticeye's, your Lily Singh's, your Eliza uh, Koshy's, but then also your brands like WWE and most of the Vivo channels. Mm -hmm. Those are like the diamond play button people. It's less than 500 people. So that's the top of YouTube. Then the gold play buttons, the big YouTubers that we all know and love, 
that's less than 5,000 people. Gary Vaynerchuk is still under a million, and he has like 2 million in Facebook, almost 2 million in Instagram, has had a million in Twitter for years, which never, by the way, funneled over in years to his Gary Vaynerchuk YouTube channel. He had to grow that organically from scratch because for years, eight years on YouTube on the Gary Vaynerchuk YouTube channel, and he wasn't breaking 40,000 subscribers and was getting like abysmal views. You can go back and you can still find Gary Vaynerchuk videos, Gary freaking Vaynerchuk videos <laughs> with under 2,000 views. He's giving away gold, telling you how to build a six or seven figure business, and he's still underrated. He's still underrated in YouTube. When people whine or tell me or throw my view to subscriber ratio in my face, and then I look at Evan Carmichael, Marie Forleo, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Tony Robbins in YouTube, Tim Ferriss, Tim freaking Ferriss, four hour work week, and all the stuff that he's done, and best selling author, like, isn't Tim Ferriss like a four time best selling author now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He can't, and he hasn't broken a quarter million. I think I might be more subscribers than him right now. Not that it matters. He's Tim Ferriss. I think there there is an absolute story here that when you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you prove a very, very good point that Tim Ferriss, everybody knows about the four-hour work week. Even if you don't know what his other three books are, you know exactly what that is, or you've at least heard of it. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of content that has been left unviewed by Gary Vaynerchuk simply because people didn't know him at the time. He wasn't the name that he is today. He positioned himself so that his vlogging was ongoing, organic, constant. He had to pound YouTube to get to the point where he was at today. And you, I was there in the beginning of the Ask Gary V show. I was one of the first questions. Wow. And in the early, early days, episode 66, I'm one of the only five people that he gave a straight up shout out in the Vayner Nation on their hustle. And I don't say that as a brag. I say that as three points. One, even a shout out from Gary Vaynerchuk didn't bump my subscriber count, nothing at the time. <laughs> I've also been on the call-in show twice for and had my question on the air in a live calling show on Ask Gary V twice. So I was a question in the early days. I was a shout out in the early days. And then later around episode like 200, I was a call-in question twice. And that, I'm telling you, it's never bumped my – now, if I was actually a, a guest, that'd be different. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Gary, let's let's work that out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but if you're listening or if your audience wants to have Gary and tell him to put me on the show, that'd be amazing. Hashtag um, it, guys. Hashtag it for Roberto. But right on. But the real answer – is that you're right. You have to stay in your lane where there's no traffic. I get emails on a weekly basis of make me famous on YouTube. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like I delete those emails because one, first of all, have a bigger goal and dream than being YouTube famous because it doesn't mean what people think because it means there's yes. an article from Gabby Dunn about people who are YouTube famous and can't pay rent because at 20 something, they thought it was a great idea to move to San Francisco or LA oh. because they had 100,000 subscribers or a half million subscribers or whatever, and then realized that they'd still have to keep working as a barista if they wanted to pay rent. It's a really great article. I believe it's called The Sad Economics of Being Internet Famous by Gabby Dunn. We'll link um, that up, guys, for you. It's this great article that gets into the economic reality of YouTubers, especially entertainment YouTubers. And in the age after we've had so many YouTube scandals, by the way, from big YouTubers, and mm -hmm. after the adpocalypse, what we refer to as the adpocalypse, uh, colloquially, the YouTube advertiser boycott that still 
like is affecting people. And now we have the shadow demonetization issue, which is a whole different rant that I can't take up our time with. Suffice to say that there are things if you're an advertiser that you see in terms of how you opt out or opt into advertising versus there's things where a YouTuber thinks that ads are running on their content, but they don't realize that their content may have been vetted or categorized in a way that may have said to advertisers that they're not advertiser friendly after all. It's not YouTube shutting off your advertisers is advertisers saying you didn't meet our standard and you are categorized in a bucket that we check the box on no on mm. like and you have no way as a content creator of knowing whether you're classified as that and it's not anything nefarious on youtube or google's part it's that the google team and the youtube team it's a parent child relationship parents mm -hmm. don't tell children everything and then these are separate appliances that happen to communicate to each other on the back end doesn't mean the product teams talk to anyone as someone who works in like corporate you understand how individual product teams are siloed and anyone who's ever worked a corporate america job understands how things are siloed but here's the funny part and the differentiator between someone like me and the majority of youtube and again it's not a brag I did my time in corporate America mm -hmm. or was Google AdWords certified in corporate America. Not anymore because I can't be bothered, but I still have all the knowledge. But my point being this is that because I know how corporate America works, my insight into how the ecosystem works from a brand standpoint and from an advertiser standpoint, I've been on the other side. They're, the majority of YouTubers have only ever been content creators, so they don't have certain real-world experience. Their entrepreneurs began and ended with YouTube, so there's a lot of context into the moving parts of a lot of this stuff that they can't see and where they have blind spots. Mm. That's why I think the content that I put out is valuable to them because it educates them on things they couldn't possibly know because they've never been in that position before and they've never come at it from the other side. There's not the empathy of being in the other person's shoes and I don't have to imagine because I've actually done it. So when I talk about the fact that there's 500 people with diamond play buttons, Less than five thousand. When Gary Vaynerchuk's like the sixteenth, the six thousandth, or like the or the five thousandth biggest YouTuber, and he still doesn't have a gold play button. And you think about what it took for him to get there, and the fact that he had to produce more content than anyone else. Jared Poland's been doing content like literally every day for the last six years. Has like almost three thousand videos now, and he still isn't even where Gary's at yet. I think he has six hundred thousand, six hundred fifty thousand. He does great content, and he has a niche, photography and video. When you look at stuff like that, and then understand, by the way, silver play button people like me with 100,000 plus, that's literally less than 50,000 people. And there are over 15 million YouTubers. So there's over 15 million people, but to even get to the top of that, let's like, I'm in the 0.1%. The gold play button people are 0 0.01, and the diamond play button people are the 0.001%. If I were to tell you, it's not a brag, and it's not throwing anything in anyone's face. If I were to say that, 99.9% .9 of you probably won't make it on YouTube. It's backed by empirical data. But here's what you really need to consider. It's because people want to be YouTube famous instead of just good at and build a community around what they're good at or what they love or what they're passionate about. Because out of those 50,000 people, the overwhelming majority of them are gamers. Out of those 50,000 people, the overwhelming majority of them are pranks. Out of those 50,000 people, it's vloggers, it's this. How many people do you think have a gold play button that are illustrators or artists? As far as I know, it's pretty much Draw with Jazza and like Jay Bay and like, you know, a few other people and Cinnamon Cooney and that's like it. Illustrators and animators in YouTube, grossly underrepresented. Musicians that aren't just music channels or the music video channels, grossly underrepresented. Educators, science channels, you literally only have eight 
science channels or 12 science channels with the gold play, but it's underrepresented. And yeah, you have all the tech people. That's a big staple in YouTube. How many automobile channels? How many motorcycle channels? How many boating channels? How many fly fishing channels? How many gardening channels? Did you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. It's like, when you think about the fact that there's only 50,000 silver play button people and only 5,000 gold play button people, and most of it is this people, this people, this group. And by the way, think about how many of those are international versus US. How many of those are the Arabic speaking YouTube channels? How many of those are the Portuguese? There's so many Brazilian YouTubers crushing it, and it's all in Portuguese. It's not even in English. So when you even throw the global diversity angle into the to the mix— there's so much opportunity and there's so much room at the top so that everyone being discouraged or saying YouTube too saturated, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. That's a load of crap to me because if you are not doing the thing that everyone else is doing or if you, God forbid, did it differently, there's so much room at the top because, again, it's just 0.1% of people crushing it, quote unquote. It's 0.1%. There's so much room. It's ridiculous. And part of the problem is everyone is quitting too soon and everyone is doing the same thing the same way instead of doing it their way. I didn't just build another tutorial channel. I went and built a channel around creative entrepreneurship and not just doing tutorials, but doing the mindset stuff that we talked about earlier. And that makes me different. I'm building a niche. I don't have a niche, which is why my view to subscriber ratio outrightly quote unquote sucks most of the time for three reasons. I don't have a niche because I'm building one. Every video I do is different, which means there's no video-to-video -video continuity. I'm not a daily vlogger. Mm -hmm. You want a great view-to-subscriber ratio? Cool. Literally, be a daily vlogger so that everyone falls in love with you and they come in and watch your reality TV sitcom every day, day in and day out, and you will have a great view-to-subscriber ratio. You want a gr great view-to-subscriber ratio? Cool. Pick a gaming genre or a niche. Literally, do only that genre or that niche or that video game. You will have a great view-to-subscriber ratio because people only came to you for one thing. I'm here to help one person at a time with one problem at a time, and I will take the crappiest view to subscriber ratio in the world because while every 15-year-old throws it in my face, the one view that mattered is the one view of the client that writes me a $10,000 check. The one mm -hmm. view that mattered is the one person who gets a job tomorrow and writes an email and says, thank you, Roberto. I now have a career in graphic design. Thank you, Roberto. I now have a career in social media. Thank you, Roberto. My YouTube channel is doing great now. Thank you, Roberto. I finally launched my podcast. Thank you, Roberto. I was going to give up on drawing because of my parents, but now I'm at college on full scholarship as a fine arts major. That one view matters a lot more to me than having a great view to subscriber ratio by literally just spamming my top 10 greatest hits mm. in a different way every single day, because I could just do that like everyone else. I think you've you hit it right on the head. You know, one of the rant over, by the way. No, 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 that's fine. Okay. I, that's that's more than a rant. I think a lot of people that were listening, there's a lot to digest here. And first, the play buttons that Roberto was talking about was what YouTube gives out to those who hits these milestones that he highlighted there. So it's an encased plaque, and Roberto has showed his silver button in one of his videos that I watched. And other people, when they get a certain amount of subscribers, gets this kind of like congratulations from YouTube. But beyond that, you've also dived into what makes... You know, people are always looking for this magic potion of, I want to start a YouTube channel. How can I be powerful? And you kind of hit it right on the head when you talked about, look, there's so many opportunities and so many niches that you could go after that are untouched because everybody, it, what it reminds me of is those hot dogs and brats that are at the gas station and they're just all rolling on the grill, looking the same. You know, all these YouTube channels 
are trying to create the same content and they're just regurgitating stuff that they heard from the last person versus going out, tapping into a market that may not seem as sexy, i.e. gardening or mechanics or whatever, but doing it really, really well. So one of the things that you push is because they love it. That's right. Do what you know or do what you love. Right. And, And that's exactly what they're doing. Mechanics. What, what you'll realize is that some of these people that are just doing gardenings and mechanics and fixing lawnmowers, they don't really have the social media acumen to kind of create really strong video images and all that. But once they got that down, you'd be surprised when I go search out how to fix a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower, how many views that guy got. Now, imagine if he created some kind of funnel behind it or branded it a little bit. He just enjoyed fixing the lawnmower. He put it out there. He has 30,000 views. Some of us have to stop being copycats and purely just do what we love. Put that as a vlog or a video log of some kind somewhere. If if you were a stay-at-home parent today, you could crush it if you were a stay-at-home parent today and you've had a bunch of kids before, not by being a family vlogger, although you could certainly do that. Let's say that I managed somehow to retire super young, right? Or actually, let's even take a look into my theoretical future. Let's for a moment pretend it's 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So that puts us at 2027. Let's let's say it's 2027. Let's say I I married, you know, because it's ideal, right? It's my fantasy. (laughs) Let's say I married a girl mid, you know, 20s or whatever, right? And she's crushing it at social media and she's either running her own business or working the agency life and, you know, travels left because this is her time. And I encouraged that because I would. And I decided that, great, I have the empire. It's on autopilot. I run the business from my phone and laptop because that's always been the goal for me anyway, is to literally be one day married and be a stay at home dad running my empire or literally have being in a position to always take my kids to work with me and let them see what I do. Mm -hmm. I've always fantasized about that being my ideal life. So if I were going to then switch up the game, because at that point I've done what I've done and then my content becomes my speaking engagements and me filming myself at the office, if I were going to do a completely different channel as a personal thing or as partly even a little bit of a memento kind of thing in some ways, I would literally be doing content as a stay-at-home dad And it would be literally like, you know, how to tie your shoes. And it would literally be a picture with me and my kids like on the steps or the front porch and be like a close up of my hands over their hands, like tying a shoe. And I guarantee you that it would get a ridiculous amount of views because every parent that wants to teach their kid how to tie their shoes or every kid that's a latchkey kid and their parents aren't home and they're like still they can't double lace or they're always tripping over their own two feet or whatever. They watch that video my YouTube channel just showing what I'm teaching with my kids becomes their Mr. Rogers. Roberto becomes Mr. Rogers for- I can I could, see you in the sweater, Roberto, and singing a song as you come through the house. Oh yeah, I could put on the Bill Carsby cardigan and I, <laughs> it's a beautiful day in my neighborhood. Like I could, I, I'm being for real. Or it's like, or finally teaching my, you know, my son uh, to tie a tie or teaching my daughter how to tie a tie for when, you know, she has a boyfriend or husband or whatever the situation is, or if she just wants to help me tie my tie. Like, or I, like yeah, literally have my daughter tying my tie, teaching her how to tie my tie. And that would be such a cute video. And it'd be so simple to make. And it can use whatever the new, the, like the freaking new smartphones of that era will be in 8K, in 3D. You'll be watching it in a hologram or some <laughs> crap. But real talk, 
it's literally this straightforward of you don't have to have this grandiose thing. You could do what you know and what you love. And if you know what you love is moments and teaching your children about life, there's someone who's going to want that or someone who doesn't have that family lifestyle that's going to then live vicariously through you and she want to share in those values in the same way that I grew up watching The Wonder Years and The Cosby Show and Boy Meets World and Family Matters and in many ways sometimes idealizing those things. We now have the option to watch those things. That's why people like family vloggers. And that's why how-to content around something as simple as tying your shoelaces or tying your tie would crush it. And you don't have to be Casey Neistat. I met a kid at Vlogger Fair and he says, YouTube channel is struggling. And like, and I asked him, well, what do you do? He's like, I'm a vlogger. And like, let me take a wild guess. You decided to try and be Casey Neistat. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. So I asked him, what's your dream? And he told me, his dream is literally to be a backup dancer for Ariana Grande. I was like, okay, and how does trying to be Casey Neistat accomplish that? And he's like, it doesn't. I was like, right. If I were you and I could dance like you, instead of trying to be Casey Neistat and open up with these beautiful time lapses or drone shots, every video I'd be doing something like spinning on my head because that's going to make me a backup dancer for Ariana Grande. Every video is a slow motion or time-lapse opening of me popping and locking before I do a vlog then. <laughs> and the vlog is about the pain, sweat, and sleepless nights of trying to make it as a dancer and wanting Ariana to notice me. And so that's how, if you have a dream, you use the platform to facilitate your dream. It's not about becoming YouTube famous. I had no desire to be YouTube famous. I wanted to, again, I wanted to help creatives not be starving artists. I wanted creatives to be able to get a job in corporate that doesn't suck by having leverage and to know what they want and to have the skills to win at that job interview from somebody who knows. I wanted to teach and empower the people that maybe hopefully one day work for me and to give them the right thesis and the right corporate culture. I wanted to inspire other creatives that become entrepreneurs one day, not to become some of the crappy bosses that I had mm. by having the right values and also understanding and how to empathize and remembering where they came from and what it was like. I wanted to bring and shine a light on the fact that creatives suffer through a lot of emotional stuff at scale to the degree that some other people, everyone deals. In my mind, so many people, not just creatives, not just entrepreneurs, deal with depression and anxiety and suicide. Yeah. But my experience is that I've dealt with those things because I'm a creative and I've watched other people in my life deal with it and struggle with it and sometimes lose that struggle. And it's very painful to me. And it's a painful series of memories that I get emotional about every single day. Anxiety is something I still deal with every single day, no matter how confidently I present. Do you know what I wake up every day worried about? I worried every day waking up, every day waking up, the first thing on my mind, aside from the fact that I'm grateful for the fact that I got to woke up and then checking all of my vitals, is I wake up every day thinking about the super volcano in Yosemite. Every single day, every single day. Mm -hmm. And the fact we haven't put the best scientific minds in this country into having a contingency plan to deal with that mm -hmm. because that's an existential threat to humanity and it's on my mind every single day. Mm -hmm. That's how neurotic I am. That makes sense. And we all have situations like that. That may be one thing for you, but there's other things that people give a lot of thought to daily that concerns them. They have family that they're, they're brazing and there's issues within our ecosystem and financially and whether it's politically, no matter what it is, there's concerns. And speaking of concerns, I was going to ask you, and this is where I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. Maybe other people that either getting into YouTube have slightly been into it, have heard YouTube change how you can monetize your vlogs and stuff like that. What is the future of YouTube? What do you see it as is in terms of being an actual revenue stream for people that want to use YouTube as a stream? This is the freaking golden era of YouTube, in my opinion. Mm. 
and we're in a bubble at the same time. And it's a three to five year bubble of a golden era and a bubble, meaning that what used to work is and should phase out and die, adapt, evolve, or die, because that's what we tell all the old media people, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we tell, quote unquote, what people want to call mainstream media. And I'll get on a rant about that in a minute, because I also hate that phrasing, because it's stupid, because it ignores data. And I'll get into that in a minute, because there's the politics side of that, which I don't love, but it's relevant. So we're in a golden era and a bubble simultaneously. YouTube is more viable financially than it's ever been if you're not freaking soft and lazy and no offense to people because I know they hustle hard on their content, but what they don't hustle hard on is business development. So if, if you're a genius at content and you hustle hard and you crank out content and it's some of the greatest and best content, but you're lazy on business development and shoring up revenue diversity because you want to live off of YouTube ad revenue because that's the YouTuber dream, you deserve to lose. I don't mean that from a like, screw you, I don't want you to win, deserve to lose. I literally mean that if you decided to just show up and not practice and I crush you on the field, you had it coming. You deserve to be crushed. It's meritocracy. Yeah. YouTube is one of the greatest examples of meritocracy and entrepreneurship that I've ever seen. And people don't believe me on that because they accuse YouTube of meddling all the time. I love YouTubers. I love the community. And I, I mean to come aggressive and sideways at this because I think that the community coddles each other too much. Mm. I think that there's too much stuff with the fake positivity and too much rah-rah and cheerleading and, oh, you can do it too. And yes, I want to encourage people more than anyone. This is only discouraging if you're a glass half full person. And again, if you're a glass half full person, you've already lost. You have to change your mindset. I'm sorry, because my answer to it is people want to win without working. And by working, I mean doing the work to change if things change. I don't know if you've noticed, I've done so many micro pivots. I've changed everything. Oh, yeah. I've seen for sure. My strategies, my deployment of content, my way of framing, I haven't changed the quality of what I do, but it's incrementally getting better and better because of small changes that make a world of difference. Mm -hmm. It's the little things and people just get comfortable because everyone's still trying to live the YouTuber dream of 2013. The algorithm changed in 2013. You cannot compare a 2017 YouTube channel to a 2013 YouTube channel. First of all, you can't compare one YouTube channel to another because YouTube is such an individual experience. It'd be like comparing my experience of high school to your experience of high school. It'd be comparing the jock golden boy to the girl who became valedictorian. They had completely different experiences of high school, even though they occupied the same space at the same time. Mm -hmm. My experience of what a career is is very different than what my parents' career experience is. And if I literally tried to play by the rules that worked for my parents in terms of success, I would freaking lose today. I think most people's parents and grandparents, if they had to start over from zero, I think a lot of people talk down to millennials and to Gen Z. And I guarantee you literally that if people are 40 or 50, despite all their experience and all of their knowledge, if they ended up in the unemployment line tomorrow and they couldn't trade in on what their past job was, let's say they got fired or their job, their CEO looted the company or something and they had to leave in disgrace for whatever reason, and they had to rebuild themselves from scratch. I audacity say 80% of our parents and grandparents would lose today because they don't have the skills and chops because they didn't evolve because they were allowed to be comfortable because their previous success let them continue to have that momentum. If that momentum were completely derailed tomorrow and they had to start over again, it'd be the most painful thing in their life. And they would not be talking down to the kids of this generation because they would be right there in the trenches understanding how hard it is. We like to thank today's sponsor, TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is the premier YouTube channel management and video optimization toolkit. YouTube creators will find their new best friend in TubeBuddy. 
Their browser extension adds a layer of amazing functionality right on the top of YouTube's website. You can perform bulk updates to your videos, such as adding annotations or cards to all your videos with just a few clicks. You can perform find replace on your videos just as you were using a word processor. You can generate professional custom thumbnails using screen prints and branding text layers. You can engage with your audience quicker and more efficiently. You can export your list of subscribers and their social profiles. You can get detailed analysis of competitor channels. You can promote your new upload across other videos. The list just goes on and on. Today's sponsor is TubeBuddy. Go into the podcast notes page and click on TubeBuddy and get it today. I think every generation is harder on the next. With that being said, Roberto, what do you see? And maybe this is off course in a sense that, you know, people should focus on what we have. But what do you see as the next social media thing that businesses should turn their attention to? Or should they just focus on YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and get that stuff right and not worry about the next woohoo? Platforms are the wrong thesis because like like that's they're just a tool. They're an appliance, but they're an appliance and a tool in a community that has its own context and culture. Everyone wants to talk about content strategy. No one talks about communication strategy Mm. and no one talks about it in the context outside of policy. No one talks about outside the context of policy. No one has a communication strategy for Twitter of, you know, what is our voice in Twitter like casual and is it for the purpose of are we doing customer service there? Because everyone wants to go to Twitter and push brand and get click throughs and get conversions. Everyone wants to go to Facebook and get click throughs and conversions. They're not using it for support and customer service or even as a focus group to really get real time data and feedback and using them as listening platforms because they don't have a communication strategy. And I know that. And I know because when I walk into my talks and I say that I use Twitter as an aggregate as a listening platform, I see people's eyes open and their jaws go slack and them slap themselves in the face and say, I never thought of that. When I tell them that I sit there and I squat and listen to the hashtag marketing problems, I sit there and I use Twitter like the freaking KGB used to use ham radio and used to sit there and like sit there with their headphones on just listening to chatter. It's it's not an accident. It's called Twitter, by the way. Like I would just sit there and listen to chatter and everything like that's like Varys and his little birds, you know, like in Game of Thrones. It's like I just sit there and I just listen to all the little birds tweet, 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 tweet. And I'm sitting there. And then by the time I go ahead and action on that and make content, it's like, wow, Roberto, how'd you know exactly what I need? You must be psychic. It's like, yeah, sure. I'm a Jedi or Sith, <laughs> like something. I'm using the force. My thesis, it's not about platforms. It's content's valuable, but it's not even about that. It's that it's a communication strategy. Content facilitates a conversation. Content can direct a conversation. Content can be an aggregate. The comment section of YouTube is a a treasure trove in terms of data mining for sentiment. And everyone thinks ROI is sales. And I literally, every time a marketer tries to tell me ROI is only sales, I have to seize up and hold back from literally punching them directly in their mouth. Yeah, because I get angry. In my opinion, there are four S's of ROI. Sales, scale, sentiment, and social proof. Sales is the obvious one, but you can't sell crap if you don't know what people love or hate and what's in demand. So you need to understand sentiment. It's why we used to pay for focus groups and polling data. Now you don't have to. You can use social media and listen at scale and document and record it, and you can data mine and harvest Twitter in real time. Hmm. So why wouldn't you? 
You can literally go direct to the marketplace and ask them what their pain is and then create a product It's and know how many people will convert on that product and know what the price point that they're comfortable with is, is not hard and it's free for Christ's sakes. So there's that scale. You can use content to position you to scale into the next thing that you're going to do. Having used social media and YouTube at scale to measure sentiment and to acquire an insane amount of analytics and know that 70% of my audience is 18 to 34, the sweet spot of sales, and that it skews up and that less than 7% of my audience is teenagers, less than 7%. So 93% of my audience is a qualified buying audience of decision makers that mostly favor high level brands and they have the money to buy Apple and Sony and Panasonic cameras and all these like, so I know the buying power of my audience. I know that because of affiliate marketing data, which means that I know what the capacity is for me to do direct sales to my audience, because if only a fraction of them are buying high-end electronics, if I sell an info product that's based around the data that I've accumulated around their pain points, I'll crush it, you know, and that's the plan. So scale Mm -hmm. and then social proof, social proof is not about your social media numbers. Not always. It can be leveraged. But you know what's great social proof for me? Having produced, edited, optimized, and marketed over a 1,000 pieces of content in the YouTube platform alone, having done over 500 Periscope live streams since its creation, having done hundreds of Facebook live streams. So being able to go back and say that I've done hundreds of YouTube live streams, that I've done hundreds of Periscope live streams, hundreds of Facebook live streams, dozens of Instagram lives, and that I've used eight different live streaming platforms. You've done your own data experiment, essentially. Exactly. That's why I call myself the crash test dummy of creative entrepreneurship. (laughs) I should trademark that. But literally being able to say, when it comes to video marketing, when it comes to the expertise that I bring to create awesome media, my social proof isn't my quarter million YouTube subscribers. My social proof is a thousand videos in YouTube alone, the data and analytics, the conversions of that on the affiliate side, the brand relationships are social proof, but the social proof is also the aggregate data that I have from 1,000 live streams and 1,000 recorded videos in a less than five-year window. That is a lot of consolidated and condensed execution and data. So when I say that when I'm one of the leading practitioners you can experts debatable. Mm-hmm. That's a matter of marketing rhetoric or opinion or data. And however you want to slice it, fine. Call me an expert or don't. I'm a practitioner with over a thousand executions under my belt in multiple things. Multiple things. Forget how many years, thousand plus executions. That's undisputable social proof because social proof is a slang for body of work public body of work. That's how I want people to contextualize that. Stop calling social proof your numbers or your follower count. Call it your public or socially available body of work because that's what proof is. I consider proof in that context a slang for portfolio. So you have a wide public portfolio, whether it's from Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, obviously, what do you Facebook now too? Facebook, that's I, right. You and you have a done- private networking group of 600 creative professionals. While everyone's trying to use Facebook groups as a mailing list by having a public group of 10 or 20,000 people, I made a very specific invite only, invite only, meaning a group member has to invite you and a moderator has to approve you to be in a in the Create Awesome Community networking group because it's a hub for creative professionals to critique, share information, resources, and to work together and to hire out of. 
Right. So it's an exclusive group of 600 people, an exclusive networking group of 600 people at different levels that includes Emmy Award winning motion graphics professional Chris Doe, who is like killing it in the creative scene and is the uh, head of Blind Design LA, Jose Caballer, formerly of the school and the future and the group from LA now back, I believe, in uh, Central America, Emmy Award winner Eric Rossi, an Emmy Award winning photography for Major League Baseball. People like that are in this networking hub and that is a great group to be able to get an invite to. The value of an exclusive group of high-level professionals that people who have been vetted and invited in that might be early in their career have access to ask questions of these people and share and have critiques, and these people are more than happy to help them and more than happy in some cases to use this as a platform for recruiting freelancers. Mm -hmm. And that's a Facebook group. It's a free thing, and I was just the central figure of people collecting around to facilitate this through my relationships. To me, that's a great accomplishment. But beyond that, I have a paid mentoring group that's exclusive because it's paid. Not that we don't want people in there, but there are people who aren't willing to pay X amount of dollars a month to be to, for a membership website and a Facebook group. And that's fine because having that tight circle, it may not be the social proof publicly that is really impressive in terms of a big number, mm -hmm. but that's qualitative because the type of people we have there the type of businesses and brands that they're growing, and also the results that they're producing. But also for me, I then have the social proof of how I used this platform, this platform, this platform to convert to a, a recurring revenue-based um, membership. So there's a success story and case study in that that I can use to train other people as creatives, someone who might want to do art lessons, someone who might want to teach a social media platform. I can tell them how to use their existing network to build a conversion funnel for a membership website or group. Yeah, I think there's so much value in having membership sites for the obvious reasons that, as you pointed out, there's a lot of quality in memberships intimacy that is being created between you and the person that is learning from you or gleaning from you. And then likewise, being in such an exclusive group, as you talked about, and there's Facebook groups all over the place, but having the camaraderie between yourself and other people within a group, you know, people that think like you, that are creatives like you, that won't laugh at your ideas. They're just there to suggest. And your voice isn't drowned out by 10,000 people. That's right. All of that has so much gold to it. And I think for those who are listening, if you haven't joined groups and you haven't got involved in some level of memberships and stuff that you are trying to hone into, whether it's Roberto's, you need to check him out. I stand behind him 100%. You know, if you're in gardening, I guarantee there's a Facebook gardening page out there. You need to get involved and find people that think like you. But in general, I have 6,000 plus followers on Instagram. So I'm building with Instagram. I do a lot of podcasts, posting and stuff there. What do you find to be where you get the best outside of the group, the membership site, where do you find your best level of engagement? I also like Twitter a lot. I can get connected right into people. But what do you think is gives you the, the pulse of the people right away? As a listening platform, overwhelmingly Twitter, aside from the groups, Twitter mm -hmm. at scale. And from an engagement and deep, intimate relationship thing, aside from Facebook, direct messenger and groups and voice calling, mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly Instagram because Instagram is the EQ platform. Instagram is about emotional connection. And I figured out, as you've seen, what my new Instagram 
I hesitate almost to call it a strategy so much as what as an execution, because there is a strategic component to it. But the strategic component was more about hacking my own self-awareness. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to look back in the same way that vloggers do on who I was and who I am and what I was thinking and feeling. So what I did was I decided to start speaking to the vulnerability side of instead of just hustle and the crushing it and the, the, I wanted to talk about the reality the painful, dark, gritty reality of being a creative and having your imagination be your greatest resource and your greatest adversary. Creatives are their own worst nightmare in the sense that our imagination is the source of all of our uh, success and all of our pain at the exact same time because as creatives, we imagine the worst every single day. I'm going where the hole is and I'm filling the hole because as a creator, that's all we do. My family's Panamanian and Cuban. I'm, I'm a black Hispanic. It's like that's a double dip on be machismo, don't be sensitive, don't wear your heart <laughs> sleep, true. don't be soft, don't cry. That's a double dip. <laughs> I mean, really? And then, you know, the Western culture being American on top of that. I mean, like, please, it's like it's game over. It's, there's a reason I got beat up every day at the bus stop. And <laughs> like, but it's the truth. I now understand that I need to talk about it because somewhere out there, there's a young kid that's like Roberta that needs somebody to say it. And I may not be able to be there for them. But in social media, I'm omnipresent. I'm omnipresent. I'm not all powerful, unfortunately, but I'm omnipresent. So that's something. I love it. I mean, I really do love the content that you put out, the, the transparency that you have, even with me here on the podcast. I mean, what you have, I really, really want listeners to go out, check out the YouTube, the live feed, Twitter, everything that he puts out is really genuine. You'll sense the the organic approach and him really rooting for you as an entrepreneur. So let me ask this last question here, Roberto. You talked about in your earlier years of you vlogging and all that other stuff, who inspired you. But today, do those same people inspire you or who are some different people that you look to to kind of keep you inspired? I'll be real with you. Everything I look at inspires me because I'm a glass half full person at this point in my life. Mm. And even if I wasn't in the worst ways, even when I was glass half full, that inspired me too, Mm -hmm. because, but you have to be open to that. And the thing is, even when my perspective was wrong, at least I was open in some ways. This was really good stuff. Look, how can people get in touch with you online? People want to get connected somehow to mentoring programs you have or get in touch with your agency share your details so so people can connect so you can find me at roberto blake and my contact details are over there one of the fastest ways to contact me is in twitter at roberto blake if you want daily inspiration and honesty about what it is to be a creative entrepreneur you can hit me up in instagram at roberto blake and instagram if you want to join my awesome creator academy group you can either go to awesomecreatoracademy.com but right now i'm running special pricing this is temporary pricing if you go to robertoblake.com beta we're doing a massive discount on Awesome Creator Academy if you want to get into this private mentoring group and this private website with free downloads and resources. We also do private mastermind calls every month as well. And so there's a ton of value there and you'll be surrounded by people hustling just as hard as you that are willing to listen, willing to give you advice, willing to critique and look at your stuff and willing to have a conversation about you and willing to work together with you. I've had so many people in the academy start working together literally and getting clients together and doing business and doing business development because I'll circle back because like before we cut off, there's like one more thing I want to get into for like maybe five more minutes because I know we're uh, running into time here. But earlier, one of the things we talked about 
was the importance of YouTube business development because we talked about, you brought up a question, the big question, is YouTube still a, a viable financial platform and can people still yes. uh, win here? Yes. And I really want to dive into that. The thing I'll say about that is I still believe that we're in the golden era, but I believe that the golden era is always meant not living on YouTube AdSense because it's too vulnerable and the majority of YouTubers, they don't even understand how AdSense works. There's so much mythology around it and they don't understand the reality because they've never been an advertiser, whereas I have. So if you're not an advertiser and ad buyer, but this is the thing making you money and you don't understand it, first of all, I think that's a mistake because AdWords.com, everyone can sign up there for free and you don't have to buy advertising to study the platform to understand the platform that generates your revenue. So that's one. The other thing is diversification of revenue. I know you are a big proponent of affiliate marketing for the obvious reasons, yes. but affiliate marketing, I disproportionately make more money on affiliate marketing than I do on YouTube ad sets, more reliably and consistency, and not just any one affiliate marketing program. And I have every intention of just scaling all of my affiliate marketing you know, stuff passively. I make thousands upon thousands of dollars through affiliate marketing and not just Amazon, but through the web hosting companies, through appliances and plugins like TubeBuddy, through other things. And then the obvious things are sponsorship. Most YouTubers, they have the trifecta of sponsorship, merchandise, and AdSense. But like that's not reliable just to do that. Sponsors, mm -hmm. what if sponsors don't have money that quarter? What if advertisers don't have money that quarter? What if there's a boycott? What if you're demonetized? That's not reliable. Merchandise, the margins on that aren't great all the time. You need an actual, in my mind, is that you do all three of those things, but then you also get a real product or service digitally, a digital product or service. Digital products are scalable. You figure something out. It doesn't always have to be an info product. It could be anything. Digital products are out there and you just have to have unique value that your audience wants. You have the data if you have an audience, so figure it out. Ask them what they want, if anything else, and just deliver on that. Also, you could do fan funding through donations through something like Patreon. You have YouTube if you do live streams, you have Super Chat. Usually if I do a YouTube live stream Super Chat, I make hundreds in that live stream versus you know how many views I'd have to get to make hundreds of dollars in YouTube based on the ad revenue. Mm. It's night and day, it's night and day. So. You could do that. Do more live. Be not afraid to do that. Figure out the qualitative part of it versus the, the like technical quality versus emotional quality. You know, figure that out. I believe in the product and service model. Like I talked about, look, a lot of YouTubers, they're not going off of YouTube and taking their expertise in video editing and crushing it because they could be making more money. They could work and do editing for another channel and make money. They could do it for the local businesses and make money. They could go and they could like they have the camera gear to do YouTube videos. They could be out there doing weddings and filming stuff and doing commercials and making money hand over fist before they make it on YouTube. They don't have to make it on YouTube to use the YouTube skills for that. If they have an audience, look, if you have an audience of 200 people and you can give each of those 200 people or like, let's say you had an audience of 2,000 people. If 10% of them, 200 of them, if you can convert even 10% of those people to $500 of value a year throughout the relationship, which is no different than saying, give them 40 something dollars of value every single month consistently, get them to buy enough products or services or something or a membership or something, or donate enough, that puts you at six figures if you get $500 in value throughout the course of a year from 200 of your relationships. So why do is everyone think they need 100,000 subscribers? 200 people, 200 people that are customers, donate, like supporters or clients to the tune of $500 throughout the year. That's a pretty conservative number in terms of monetizing a relationship year round. Mm. It's not that difficult. So that, and, and not everyone needs to make $100,000. So you see, there you go. So this is practical. This is like the real practical advice that I'm talking about here. So there's that facet of it. You don't have to write a 
straight up print book and your audience might value an ebook from you and it doesn't have to be a tactical ebook like my stuff's gonna be it could be philosophical i mean people would probably buy a book from me on bullying one day like i mean easily um that would be real and you could do something like that whatever your unique value or your unique experiences i mean it's just real to me that if people are choosing you and people relate to you and people identify with you, then monetizing and figuring that out, there's so many ways to do it. And I think people are just locking in on YouTube ad revenue because it's passive income and they're dreaming about that and they want to make money in their sleep. And I get it. I make a lot of money in my sleep. I wanted to make money in my sleep, but I don't just do that. I When I did consulting, if you actually have some data in YouTube and you think that you're that analytical type of person, you can articulate well, become a consultant. And maybe it be a consultant to the rest of your niche and maybe not just limited to YouTube, but even to the companies. Like I go back and I talk to the companies. I talk to creators. I talk to entrepreneurs that are outside of YouTube that want to leverage the platform or other social media. But you know where I really get into with people with consulting, where I really get into people with consulting is a lot of people want to know how to streamline and they want to know how to automate and they want to know how to monetize and they want a content strategy and production stuff. It becomes much less about the YouTube algorithm than it does about streamlining their business and maximizing their time because they don't understand how it is that I can do all of the things that I'm doing with the same 24 hours in a day that they have mm -hmm. and do all the traveling and speaking that I do. I mean, that's another thing, speaking in public appearances and hosting duties, there's money in that. And so people can do that and you don't have to have a big following. You just have to be the voice in a small niche and you could be the person or you make the right relationship with the right company or brand. It doesn't matter. There are small YouTubers who do that all the time and there are small YouTubers doing big things all the time. And again, you don't have to make it in YouTube. Yulin Kuang is a filmmaker. She has less than 20,000 subscribers. She was speaking last year at VidCon next to Casey Neistat, and she had her own panel. And you know why? She's not even 30 and right out of college, not that long. And she's actually directing stuff. And she got on the CW seed for the web series I Ship It, which is in season two. So a pet project as a short mini series that sat on her YouTube channel for almost two years, went into production and the CW, which is owned by CBS Broadcasting, by the way, mm -hmm. and Warner Brothers bought the rights to her thing and let her direct it and be the showrunner. So wow. 20,000 subscribers and you got to work for actual Hollywood. Like, I don't think why people think they need the numbers. It's the one person seeing your stuff that can give you an opportunity it's like stop chasing these numbers and stop thinking you need a hundred thousand, a million subscribers. You don't. You need the right content that reaches the right people and you need the right business strategy and you need the right appliances attached to your channel to do these things. I'm building a whole separate YouTube channel for Awesome Creator Academy and the content's gonna be different than what's on my main YouTube channel. I'm building a whole different YouTube channel for Create Awesome Media. And the Create Awesome Media YouTube channel, one, is gonna host a video version, but not video video. It'll be like audio with like static stuff of the podcast. And then the rest of content is gonna literally be mostly videos that handle social media terminology so that every single potential client of Create Awesome Media is speaking the same language and we're not all making up definitions of things. So that's what that's gonna be. Mm -hmm. Awesome Creator Academy, totally different thing where a lot of it is going to be information on resources and tools more than my current channel is. Uh, it's gonna be about tools and the resources and what to buy and what to download in terms of 
tools, analytics, hardware, and software. It's going to be actually some long-form training on things like analytics and data in these back-end platforms and what the dashboards are. Uh, it's going to be that. And also on the Create Awesome Media YouTube channel, there's going to be a lot of videos that are about social media platform updates because our clients will need to stay on top of what happened, what did Snapchat change, what did Instagram change, what did YouTube change. It's going to be those news updates. So there's that aspect of it. And so the business models are different. One of those channels is just for client services for a consultancy and agency and for manage, a social media management. And the other one is a resource for the membership group of free content as a funnel to get more people to join that mentoring program, but to also have some of their stuff together beforehand, because I don't really feel that's for super, super absolute beginners. It's for people that need actual mentorship because they're on a path, but they may not have the appropriate direction. It's context. It's context. That's very different than my personal brand, where I'm the living crash test dummy of creative services. <laughs> do you There's do anything on Udemy? Not yet, and I say not yet because Udemy and Skillshare will basically, in my mind, I think I'm going to just basically repurpose my YouTube content, especially long-form stuff that fits the context of that platform for free, and give it away in Skillshare and Udemy just as a marketing funnel because with Awesome Creator Academy, I'm going to sell high-end and high-level courses because I control the platform and I don't have to split the revenue. And I believe in that model a lot more. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use Udemy and Skillshare from a marketing standpoint of an, as another distribution funnel of existing content repurposed for that platform. And then I will own my own courses in, in, their, in perpetuity and in their entirety. That being said, I have been approved to be a Linda instructor and I will be a Linda and LinkedIn learning instructor doing some specific stuff with them. That's cool. And my aspiration currently is to also do something with Creative Live. So if anyone wants to go to creativelive.com slash suggest and uh, suggest me as an instructor for Creative Live, I'd be happy to give a ton of value over there because that's an ambition of mine. So it's, it's things like that and obviously public speaking. Uh, I've started staffing and outsourcing enough to where I have the resources to own my own platform. I don't think everyone does. And I don't think that's the starting point for everybody. I waited four to five years to do that for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it was about patience. And that's the other thing. I don't think YouTube is a fast cash grab. It used to be in the wild, wild west uh, in you know 2013, 2015. You can get on YouTube and you could either become a liberal or conservative commentator and just use clickbait controversy and make a small fortune. They shut that down. I couldn't be happier. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be happier. And not because I want to suppress the politics side of it because I remember I wanted to talk about this. The politics side of it, I'm not about the suppression of free speech. It's free speech. And it's really free speech if you're not making any ad money. <laughs> that's true. But if, it, if you think that's important and to the masses, it's called, well, you're working at your job. When you first start on the platform, everyone starts at zero anyway and doesn't make any money. So what's the difference? If you believe in the cause, if you're a true believer, then getting paid is a bonus, isn't it? So if you think that there's something worth putting, because guess what? Like, and someone would say, well, Roberto, why don't you just turn off all your ads? It's like, one, I don't have to. YouTube loves me. I don't have to. And mm -hmm. then two, and they're not going to demonetize me. And then two, I'm not putting out anything controversial. And then three, it's that I did for the longest time. Eventually, I made money. Most YouTubers, the big YouTubers we know today, most people don't realize they spent three to five years in the hole doing YouTube. Mm -hmm. 
They spent three to five years not making money. I mean, Philip DeFranco was doing this and making next to no money for a good while. You know, he's been on this platform for a decade, but he spent the first four years of that worrying about money. Mm-hmm. And no one today starting, most people don't have the patience for that. They don't make money in six months to a year, they cry. But he also diversified. He went to his, like he always started out with the merch and doing brand deals. He never relied on ad revenue. He always knew it was vulnerable because he lived in the real world of not coming from money. And he started in North Carolina, by the way. Like a lot of people forget that. Oh, did he really? Where where'd he start at here? I believe he was in Raleigh. Wow. You're a wealth of knowledge. I'm so glad we got an opportunity to kind of talk with each other and connect. It's one thing to watch your YouTube videos, talk to you on Twitter, but it's another thing just to have a conversation with you. I love your spirit, dude. I really appreciate your generosity and time with me, man. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Oh, it was my pleasure so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reaching out. Thanks for listening. The next episode of Missions and Marketplace podcast drops on Sunday, drops every Sunday. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. I got love for you, and I know you have it for me. Help me raise the bar even higher. For more information about the show, follow me on Twitter at the handle P. Willis Sr. Until next Sunday, keep dreaming, keep pushing, and I'll do the same, and I'll talk to you soon. Impregnable, and I'm just ferocious.